The title of my message this morning is The Bold Witness, and it's taken from the, the sermon series and the passage we're going to be reading in just a minute. But, but I tell you, after, after hearing from Molly this morning, I just, let, let's, let's call it a day. Let's wrap it up. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, I mean, this is, this is a really new and exciting beginning for her, and I'm actually going to be talking about that a little bit more, but I'm going to also mention that this is a, a, a powerful time for us. You know, as, you know, as she goes, we get to be a part of what she's doing because, as, as uh, Alex said, we are all connected through the church Catholic, the, the, the church that is universal, that binds us all together through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we are just so pleased to be able to be here today. But as we move forward, we're going we're gonna, to uh, just begin something new today. And it's a good time for new beginnings because we are in that season of a year that, that to me is a little bit strange. You ever noticed that, that we, in at least, I, I don't know, maybe you're more like this. I, there, there are two types of people. They're the people who think of New Year's beginning in January. And then they're the people who think of New Year's beginning in September. And those are usually people who are in school or have kids in school. And it's like your whole life begins to sort of revolve around that sort of new year. And so that's a, and if you really want to get churchy about it, then there's the new year in December, which is Advent, which is really when the church year starts. So if you're thoroughly confused now, that's okay. But we're just, we're about to begin a new season in this church, just like Molly is beginning a new season in her life and in her ministry. Um, Just like several of you have children who are, you know, they graduated from high school and are getting ready to begin a new season season in college. We're moving my son uh, into, into his dorm this Friday. I've talked to several who've got kids who've moved in to their new dorms this week, and they're getting ready to start college. Maybe others are getting ready to start basic training or graduating from basic training, and there's a new phase starting. Um, you know, there are all kinds of new beginnings right now, and as Alex mentioned, we are going to be starting our new church year in, uh, in our kickoff Sunday next week, and I hope that you all will plan not only to come yourselves, but to bring a friend. And I say that a little bit in fear, because I remember once when I was a, when I was a relatively young pastor in a small country church, we were, in a outside, we were outside a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, and, and things were going well. People were moving into our area. We had lots of visitors every week, and we went from being about a church of about 50 to we were moving up to about 100 now. We were starting to hit on about every, 100 every Sunday, and we decided to have a bring a friend to church Sunday. And it was awesome. And, and I just, I kind of looked out over my little congregation of about 100 people. And I thought, yeah, wow, this is going to be awesome. If everybody in here brings a friend, we'll have 200 people here next week. We will be bursting at the seams. But then I thought, well, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves, Bob. If we have 50% of our congregation come, we'll have 150 people here. That'll still be awesome because it was this tiny little country church. I thought, that'll be great. I walked in to the pulpit the next week from the back, and I looked over the crowd, 75 people. That meant that not only <laughs> did people not invite friends, 25 didn't show up on Bring a Friend to Church Sunday. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to the church. Don't do this to Alice. Don't, please, please. Bring a friend next week. Introduce them to, to First Presbyterian Church because this is a great time to begin some new things in, in our year and in our lives. And so in honor of this new season, as we move into this new phase of life in a lot of different areas of our lives, we're starting a new series. And this new series is based on several episodes from the book of Acts. Now, 
It's going to start, really, it's going to focus on one particular verse from the book of Acts. It's one of the opening, one of the opening verses of that book. Now, as you may know, the book of Acts is about the very early history of the church. It's about how this, this small, this bold, this impressive group of people started a 2,000-year movement that went all over the world because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And really, this whole series is going to be focused, or really, I should say, is going to be starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what we're going to really dig into next week. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, there's that word, that my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now the key word that I want you to notice, not only this week, but also for the weeks to come, is that word witness. We are going to be witnesses. We are called to be witnesses by the power of God. And so witness is the title of this new sermon series. And in in this series, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a witness. And this fall, we're going to unpack what it means specifically to be a witness of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus Christ? Well, let's, let's turn to our passage for today. We're going to read today from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 21. We're going to go back to 1-8 next week, but we're just getting a little bit of context here. So in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, the apostle Luke writes this, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that this is your word. We know that it is completely true and that it is given in love. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Now, this passage that we've just read is actually a continuation of a larger story. And so we need to pull back the camera so we can get the the whole picture so we really understand what's happening in these words that we just read. In Acts chapter 3, the preceding chapter, Peter and John went to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. 
And there they met this crippled man who was lame from birth, and he comes up and he asks Peter and John for money. But then, just kind of out of nowhere, off the cuff seemingly, filled with the Holy Spirit, listen to what Peter says. Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping up. I love that. He was just lame a minute ago. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Isn't that awesome? And this whole guy's life has just been transformed. And the Bible says that when the people saw him come into the temple, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, asking for charity. I think it's awesome. When the people saw this, they saw this man that they'd seen every day standing up and walking and praising God, they were amazed, just blown away. And then what did Peter do? He started to preach again. He He started to unpack what had just happened. And he said to the astonished crowd that God had healed this man to bring glory, to bring attention, that is, to his son, Jesus Christ. And then he tells the crowd how God took the rejection and death of Jesus, and through the rejection, or excuse me, through the resurrection, how he turned that rejection and death into victory and eternal life. If you go back and read chapter 3, that's what you'll see there. Now, As that was happening, the religious leaders were getting angrier and angrier. They were furious. They didn't like this at all. They got upstaged, bad, in the temple, on their own home field. I mean, this guy had been sitting there for years, and they hadn't been able to do anything about it. They'd never even bothered to try to do anything about it. And here comes Peter and John, not even the Jesus guy. Here come Peter and John who come in and in the name of Jesus, heal him, and then start to declare that the reason that God has healed this man is because they want to, because God wants to bring attention to his son, Jesus. I mean, who gave them the authority to do this? Who gave them the power to do this? Who gave them the nerve to do this in the temple? You can't do that without a permit. I mean, here come the religious authorities, you know, I mean, the, and the temple bureaucrats are like, we don't see him on the schedule. You know, this was not approved by a committee. We can't have that. And so they, they took him aside. They actually arrested them. They had the temple guards arrest them, and they said, do not ever come in here and do this again. You are forbidden from ever preaching in this name Again, I mean, even though Peter and John had changed this man's life forever, these priests and temple bureaucrats tried to shut it down in order to them never to preach again. And so what did the disciples do? Well, they left, and we see that in the next chapter, they are gathered and they are praying. And it says that, after they, began to, after they were kicked out, that the believers prayed for courage and still more people believed. Now, 
I think that Peter and John and all the rest of the disciples realized at this moment that this was a watershed moment. They realized this wasn't a one-off event. This was foreshadowing. This was a heads up for what was going to be happening. I mean, in just a few chapters, within pages, we're going to see that the next time that John and Peter are, are preaching, that they are arrested. And they are scourged. That is, they are whipped with flails. They're thrown in prison. And even at this time, before any of that even happened, they're beginning to see the handwriting on the wall, that this is about to get really hard. Telling people about Jesus is about to get really hard, and it's about to get really dangerous. And they said, you know what? We're going to need to go back and pray about this. We need more power than we've got. We need more help than we've got. We need Jesus. And so they got together with all the other disciples and, and the other followers of Christ, and they prayed. Now, what did they pray for? Chapter 4 tells us, what did they pray for? They got together and they prayed. And what's interesting is that they did not pray for what I would pray for. What, what would I pray for? protection. What did they pray for? Boldness. Don't you love that? You know, what if the church started to pray not that God would protect us, but rather that the devil would fear us, that the world would, would be compelled to, ta- to, pay seriously, uh, to take seriously the gospel that we proclaim. Lord, give us boldness. Now, let's unpack that word for a moment. What is boldness? What does that mean? You know, when I hear the word boldness, I associate that word with courage. But it also kind of has a tone of bravado or swashbuckling or kind of an Errol Flynn type of, type of disregard or devil-may-care attitude or maybe just a plain old sense of I've got guts. Boldness is just kind of the rawest form of courage. But I want to take you into the word that's actually used here. The word in Greek is the word parisia. Parisia. And I love this word because it sounds to me like kind of a compound word. The word, the, the, comp, the, the uh, prefix para in Greek actually means with or alongside. And then the second part, this is an English importation. This is just Bob just enjoying working with scripture. Um, I love it. it says para, and then the word is easier, like ease. That they began to proclaim with ease. Now, is there any exegetical backup for that? None, zero. That is possibly heresy. But, <laughs> but it really does get to the sense of the word. Because parisia, as the word is used in Greek literature, means a calm steadiness, not bravado, not arrogance, but a calm steadiness that comes from clarity and joy and certainty of truth. We might say that parisia is excitement and enthusiasm that comes from steady strength. You know, like, think about the base of a pyramid. Steady strength. And so I want to submit to you a working definition of boldness this morning. That boldness is courage and candor grounded on confidence and compassion. That is, boldness is courage and candor grounded on confidence and compassion. So first, when the disciples prayed for boldness, they were praying for courage. Molly Stuckey, you are my new hero. 
You've got more guts, you've got more boldness, you've got more courage than, than most people I know. And on top of that, she's an engineer too. I mean, wow, not just what she is stepping into, but what is she stepping away from? I mean, the career opportunities, the wealth, all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is, this is a big move. It's a bold move. And it takes courage. The disciples prayed for courage because of what they had seen happen to Jesus. They knew that they were going to need courage if they were actually going to go through with this mission upon which Jesus had set them. You know what's interesting about this word witness? The word witness in Greek is the word martyr. I don't mean that the word for witness is the word martyr. I mean, I mean it is actually the word. It's not the word for martyr. It is martyr. Martyros, martyriamon. I can't remember all the forms. But it is a word that we associate with suffering and death and dying for a cause. So what is a martyr? It's someone who through suffering or death becomes an example or a rallying point. Embedded in the word witness is the acknowledgement that this is going to be hard. You're going to need courage to get through this. This is not going to be easy. You may have seen reports from Lagos, Nigeria, that on Pentecost Sunday, terrorists came in, threw bombs on top of a church, and shot people as they were coming out. Eighty people were killed. This was not 2,000 years ago. This was, this was a couple months ago. This happens all the time, all over the world. This sort of gathering is actually pretty rare. We are in a country where we are blessed that we can do this. And Jesus knew, the Holy Spirit knew, that we were going to need courage. As a matter of fact, the second century church father, Tertullian, said that the church, excuse me, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Our church exists, our church is spread all over the world because people had the courage to stand up in, in the face of incredible pain, suffering, persecution, and say, Jesus is still worth it. Courage is deciding that Jesus Christ is still worth it in spite of everything else. So the first part of boldness is courage, but that's not the only thing. People a lot of times will stop there. A second piece to boldness, biblical boldness, is candor. Candor. Jesus introduced the good news of God's love by calling people to repentance. What is repentance? That means telling people that we need to turn away from selfishness and from the idols of our culture and from power and greed and anger and fear and despair and lust. And we need to turn away from that and turn to him. Now, those are uncomfortable conversations, but they're conversations we need to have. But that's where courage comes in. But let me, let me help you understand something, too. Candor is not what we typically think of as candor. A lot of times, a lot of Christians think that the way to bring somebody to Christ, to share the love of Christ, is to tell them how bad they are. This is your problem. You're a train wreck. But God loves you. How about we start with God loves you. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to prove it. And let's, see, let's talk about some of this other stuff too. Now people may think that's kind of a soft sell, isn't it? It's like, well, but look at the way he approached us. Jesus Christ came and gave his life for us, accomplished the work of salvation before we could ever claim that gift. 
He started with love. Christian candor is not the same thing as criticism. I have a good friend who was an elder in my previous church. We used to say, Bill, your love language is criticism. Because he didn't love you unless he was taking you apart. Um, but No, that's not true. He's a great guy. I hope this is... Can we cut that part out? Um, so, so... But let me say, there is no such thing as Christian candor without vulnerability. Christian candor does not begin from a place of arrogance or I have my act together. Christian candor begins from a place of vulnerability. That the only reason I can talk to you about your need for Jesus is because of my need for Jesus. Because that's really what Christian candor is. It's helping people understand that I need Jesus Christ in my life. One of my mentors, Dr. John Leith, once wrote this, that the task of Christian witness is to help those who believe to understand how Jesus Christ answers the deepest questions of their lives and makes sense of their experience. At some point, in some way, we all ask the question, why do I need God in my life? It's a very personal question, one that we're all going to have to wrestle with in our own way. But we all know that at some point, we are all going to have a challenge, a crisis, or a problem that we cannot handle on our own. A crisis of identity, or mortality, or morality, or sufficiency. Some type of crisis, a crisis of reality. And we are not going to know what to do. It's going to be bigger than we are. It's going to be stronger than we are. It's uh, going to be overwhelming. And we are going to say, we need some help. And the task of Christian witness is to say, help is here. And his name is Jesus Christ. Our task is to tell people that God is real and his promises are bigger than our problems. Our our task is to tell people that we are his children and he loves us and our lives matter. That when we can't handle this world on our own, he is with us and we are not alone. And that when it starts getting hard to tell the difference between right and wrong, He gives us his law and his truth. But candor is helping people understand that they need Jesus. And candor is sharing that truth with them in a positive way. So courage and candor, it's also grounded in confidence. Now this is probably the heart of this particular passage. Boldness is grounded in confidence. Take a look at the prayer of the disciples that is right in the middle of this passage. This prayer just radiates confidence. But not confidence in themselves, confidence based on who God is and what God has done. First, who God is. What do they say about God in this prayer? When they begin to pray, they don't pray like I usually do, which is what? Dear God, precious Lord, terms of affection. How do they start? Sovereign God. They cry out to him as sovereign Lord. That means he has authority over everything. There's nothing that can challenge or overpower him, and there is nothing that can undermine him. Why? Because he's the creator, it then says. He's not just making the world a better place. He made the world. And then look at verse 28. It says that everything has happened and is within the, within the plan that the Lord predestined to take place. Now, I am a lifelong Presbyterian. Do you think I was going to let that one slide by? No way. I can't unpack it thoroughly here today. 
But let's understand what they're saying and why this is important. What that means is that the disciples have confidence that God is God because he is the author of the story. He knows the plot. He knows the characters. He knows the setting from beginning to middle to end. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure. He has written this story. He knows where it's headed, and he has absolute confidence that he is in control. We don't get to just jump off the page and say, you know what, I'd like to edit, make a few edits here. He is absolutely, absolutely confident because he's written the story. And it's in that that the disciples have their confidence. There's nothing that can pluck them from his hand. And you know what? There's nothing that can pluck a single one of his children from his hand. You think that you, by your missteps, by your, by your misstatements, do you think you can undo the plans of the creator of the universe? No. God loves us too much for that. Yes, he wants us involved, but he has not left us alone with this. So it's about who God is. But their confidence was also grounded in what they themselves had seen God do. You know, if you look back at chapter 3, you'll see that after the lame man was healed, immediately Peter began to preach that we are witnesses to what's happened, to the death, excuse me, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, not only are we witnesses to what he's done, we're witnesses to what he's doing. Look at what he just did to this man. Here he is. This man has been healed by the name of Jesus. Peter's saying, we are eyewitnesses to what God has done and to the power of what God can do. And we know, we've seen that he understands us because this God became one of us. And we have seen that he loves us because when push came to shove, he went to the cross to prove how much he loves us. And we have seen that he has power over death because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore none of those fears of death or all the little sub-fears that go with bad health or, or any of the other cravings or fears that we have, none of that applies anymore because none of it has power. It's a death of all the little deaths. But he also, they also know that he has the power to make a difference in this life, and I give you exhibit A, this man who was lame and is now leaping and praising God. Absolute confidence. What if we prayed boldly? What if we witnessed boldly? What if we really believe that our God is big enough to do these things? John Piper says something that just convicts me every time I think about it. He says, our problem is not that we ask God for too much. It's that we ask God for too little. What if we started praying big, si big God-sized prayers to the real God? instead of just what we thought we could manage on our own if it doesn't work out. Confidence. Finally, compassion. Witness is not only important to us, it's important to God. There is not a person in this world that you've ever locked eyes with that God doesn't care about. And, and let me say this, this is not just a theological thing. You are his beloved child. With you, he is well-pleased, and he is going to bring you home. He is going to make sure that you get home. You know, I, I remember several years ago when um, 
I was, uh, we were at an academy, you know, at academy sporty goods store. And, and I remember, you know, at one point, uh, I was with Bo, my son, who was probably about 12, no, probably 10 at the time. And, and he was, he was here and, and he was looking at the, at the, at the Frisbee, um, not Frisbee golf, the, at the disc golf discs. And he was kind of picking up, picking up one, looking at the picture of another, looking, you know, all this kind of stuff, looking at one after the other. And, you know, and so I, you know, and so while he was distracted by that, I decided to run around to the other side of the aisle and look at whatever it was I needed to take a look at. So I went around to the other side of the aisle and I came back. It couldn't have been more than a minute, you know, but the problem is I didn't go to the right aisle. I like skipped one. And what I didn't see Bo, and I panicked. And so I started looking, I started looking. It turns out he had just come, gone around the end cap a little bit. I started looking, I started looking. I was like, where is he? He's lost. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, I'm the world's worst dad. I've lost my kid in academy sports. There's no, you know, and I was like, I started dealing with it. It's like, oh my God, it's like on the one hand, it's fear, but on the other hand, it's shame. It's like, what if, I, and so I started looking around and asked, you know, and I finally went to one of the store clerks. I said, I said, I can't find my 10-year-old son. And they said, sir, do you want us to engage a code at him? I was like, what is that? <laughs> I just see the SWAT team just swinging in through the windows and stuff like that. Do you want to engage a code at him? And, I, and finally, my, my love for my son overrode everything else. I said, yes. And all of a sudden, whoop, whoop, whoop. And within two minutes, they had found Bo right where I left him. I left him, incidentally. <laughs> But you know what? I mean, so, so I, was, I was suffering from the twin peaks of embarrassment and relief. But you know what? I mean, at that point, I would have done anything to find him. There's not, I would have, I would have dug through every, every aisle. I would have locked down the entire, the entire complex, I would, everything. I was going to find him and I was going to bring him home. Why? Because he was my beloved child. You think God cares for us or any of his children, any of his lost children, one iota less? So boldness is built from compassion when he installs that in us and we remember that not only does he love us, but he loves that other lost person. And that kind of love is driving you. It's, it's interesting how the rest of these qualities, courage, candor, um, uh, confidence, those all just sort of fall into place. Somebody you love is missing. You'll do everything you can to bring that person home. And that's what God did in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And we are witnesses to that. And so what we are, what, what we are praying for and what they were praying for is that we would have the kind of boldness, the kind of love, the confidence that the disciples had because they knew that this is a God, they knew that this is a God who loves us, that he has the power to make a difference in our lives, that he has a plan and purpose for our lives, that he is the author of this story and that he, has, uh, he is moving this whole story to summation and that he has the power to make things happen. And so as we come to this, as we come to the end of this, I want you to remember, be bold. God has set you in a place. He has given you the authority. He's given you the power of his son to share what you have, what you have seen with others. Just like it changed the life of that man in the temple, it can change their lives. So be bold. Be positive. 
Share with them that love. And remember, he has confidence in you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today because we, we sometimes lack confidence in ourselves. We worry that if we share what we know about you, that it's going to be dangerous or that we will fail or that we'll mess things up or that something won't happen right and people will be disappointed. We, just, we worry about all these things, but you have given us the confidence, the proof, the vision of your son so that we can see that, that you love us so much that the sovereign God, the creator and author of the universe is not going to let this fail. So Lord, give us the the confidence and the courage to know that even though it's hard, you are with us. Just as you said in the Great Commission, lo, you are with us even until the end of the age. Help us to remember that, that we are held in the palm of your hand. So Lord, take us now into your world, ready to share that great confidence, that boldness with others. In Jesus' name, amen.